traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. History has rarely been made by nudists. From politicians rallying nations to pop icons and film stars, we remember not just what they did, but what they wore while they were doing it. Think Margaret Thatcher's handbag, Audrey Hepburn's little black dress, or the artfully ruffled shirts of Prince. The fast-moving world of what we wear, where it comes from, and what we mean when we wear it is in flux. The rise of online retail has left the high street reeling. Objections to cultural appropriation and catwalk stereotypes have complicated the business of selling high style. And designers, both expensive and fast fashion purveyors, are having to reckon with the environmental impact of their creations. So this week we're asking, can fashion keep up with 21st century trends? My guest has been following, making and breaking the rules of fashion for three decades. Instantly recognisable for her sharp bob and dark glasses, Dame Anna Winter has been editor-in-chief of Vogue since 1988. She's artistic director of the magazine's publisher, Condé Nast, and she's a moving force behind the Met Costume Institute Gala Ball. She's regularly called the most powerful woman in the industry. Anna Winter, welcome to The Economist Asks. Good morning and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the question I was asked by all of my team relentlessly was, well, what are you going to wear for this interview with Anna Winter? So you tell me who you're wearing, uh, which is just very beautiful, of course. I'm wearing a shirt dress by Mucha Prada, who's obviously one of my very favourite designers, whose clothes I wear a lot. And I'm in such a lucky position to see so many different collections and to be able to choose my own personal wardrobe from the best designers in the world. But when in doubt, I reach for Mucha. And I thought, as I'm in New York, I would just wear a, a simple American designer dress. But I have to confess, it's, you know, it's from one of those sales that's going on all around town at, at the moment. Is it all fashion? Is what we're both doing fashion? Or are there sort of levels of fashion, do you think, in terms of fashion hierarchy? I definitely think that there is a level of creativity among the best designers in the world who give inspiration not only to women who buy their clothes, but to those of us who are editors. And to be frank, they give it to a lot of other designers or houses rather that maybe take inspiration from what they're doing and I think that that is how fashion has always worked and will continue to do but one big change I see right now and particularly coming back from the collections as I I just have done in, in Europe is a sense that customers, CEOs, owners of big businesses are really searching for what fashion means today and how that there needs to be an an emotional connection and that fashion cannot be seen as something that is in any way disposable, that women need to look at fashion as not only an investment from a personal point of view, but an investment 
in terms of clothes that they can wear again and again, this idea that you wear something once and then won't be seen in it again seems completely out of step with the times. And it really isn't about what the price is. You can find wonderful fashion at less expensive prices and wonderful fashion at insane prices. But I think it's much more about fashion, clothing, being emotional, something that you could give to your daughter or something you could give to your son as time goes by. And it having really meaning and connection and reminding the wearer of moments in their life. And I think it's important that all of us who live in a world where everything is seen so visibly, so instantly um, by so many that maybe a sense of value and connection is, is, is very meaningful right now. You were once quoted as saying you either know fashion or you don't. But do the rules change? You, 30 years at the helm of, of Vogue, which you, you celebrated last year, have there been changes to the rules? Well, there have been monumental changes in 30 years. When I first started in, in, in fashion, you know, it was for a small group of journalists. The shows were shown for a small group of journalists. Uh, the amount of photographers present at the shows was heavily managed. There was no video at that time. There was certainly no influencers. And there were, except at the couture, very few customers. And we've seen so much change. The shows have become like theater. I mean, they are a way of a designer getting his or her message out to the world instantly through so many different channels, whether it's through video, Instagram, or people who are present at the shows, reporting backstage or live through everybody's personal accounts. I mean, it's... Do you it's, like that? I mean, if you if you had the time again, would you I, I return think, to a time when it was, in a sense, the whole experience was more curated and less, you know, less sort of levels? I think, I think there's absolutely room for both. I, I was lucky enough just to be in Europe at the couture shows where there's obviously fewer people and it does feel like a, a more rarefied, as you say, curated experience. But I also think the fact that fashion is so democratic and available to everybody is wonderful. And the fact that we as journalists now have so many opportunities to talk to our audiences in so many different ways, for us not to take full advantage of that or acknowledge that would be ridiculous. I mean, fashion is an industry that reflects change, leads change, is a conversation constantly about change. So I'm not really a believer in looking back at the past, um, except to tell stories. And I, I, I think we have to celebrate the future and what where fashion is, is really taking us right now. And I, I see so many conversations happening to do with the the world that we're living in. Obviously, sustainability is, is top of everybody's list. I think values in terms of what a house might stand up for right now is is very important. I think it's not a time uh, to be mealy-mouthed and weak and, and trying to please everybody. It's I, I think that time is not now. Let's come back to the interesting times we're living on on both sides of the Atlantic in, in just a moment. I wanted to stay with you on, on social media and its impact for just a moment. So Vogue has a big presence on social media across all the platforms. You've been more reticent. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's the right balance for, for those at the, the top of organisations and for the editors? Or do they also need to be part of this conversation? 
I think everybody makes their own decisions. I, I believe very strongly that I work for Condé Nast. I work for Vogue. I don't work for Anna Winter. When I can be useful, for instance, there's a little video series I do called Go Ask Anna. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do podcasts like the ones that we're doing right now. I'm, I'm happy to do interviews when it feels applicable. I feel that we have a very, very strong and interesting social media presence through our Instagram account. I think we're at 27. Is it 20? I think it's 27 million followers right now. And that to me is how it should be. I think. But Vogue- it sounds like something you prefer other people to do. And how do you then avoid kind of missing, perhaps missing things that may be happening in China? If you look at the vast rise of social media there, do you feel that you can still but curate I- that? If you're not in it yourself. I don't feel it's necessary for me to have a business Instagram account, which is about promoting myself. I feel that Vogue does a great job of talking to our audiences all over the world through through so many different platforms. And of course, I'm aware of all of them and involved in many of them. And to me, it's not only about our social media platforms per se. Per se. It's about what we put in the print editions of the magazine. It's what we put in our website. It's what we do in terms of events. I'm personally very, very supportive of the Met Gala that we host every year, which is a way of talking to our audiences. I think we reached well over a billion in 2019 through different channels for the, for the Met Gala. So I'm aware of it. I, I help shape it. But I think it isn't necessary for me to have my own personal voice. As I said, to me, the the most important voice in this is Vogue's. And how has that kind of rebalancing between social media and digital presence changed the role of the magazine Vogue, which for a lot of us, this is generational. Vogue means a magazine, probably I have younger listeners today, for whom it could mean Vogue.com primarily. Is that a challenge no, it's an opportunity. No, I think it's an opportunity, and I think we have to look at all the different channels that are now available to us, whether it's it's through events like the Met or the Fashion Fund, and where we support young American designers, or talking to people within the industry about how we can be helpful, how we can maybe suggest a, a designer here, a new communications director there. We're always in conversation with the leaders of the industry and we're always in conversation with our audiences and how fantastic is it to have all these different channels and each one works in different ways and we use each one in different ways. To me, the print edition of Vogue is our flagship. It's our voice of authority. It is the place where a movie star an important musician wants to be, well, certainly wants to be on the cover. And then we use the material, the content that we have across all our platforms. And at the same time, we are creating original content, again, across, particularly right now in video. In okay, so what's the difficult part of this, right? It, it can't, it all sounds like... Finding a, time. <laughs> it's just finding <laughs> time to keep... Be, yeah, there must yeah. be a challenge. It's, or it's finding time, but I'm also very a great believer in delegation and finding people that are way better than I am at what they do and letting them do what they do. And of course, I want to know what's going on, but you can't 
micromanage in a digital age. I mean, that would be impossible. You would just never sleep and you would never have anybody happy working for you. And I I think people do so much better when they feel that they are empowered and they have freedom and they can make choices themselves. And looking at the results and looking at how much we've achieved, particularly in the last 10 years, in transforming Vogue into this multimedia brand is 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 extraordinary. We talk a lot in our societies at the moment about about the gaps, about the inequalities and what we can realistically do about it without entirely sort of taking the the fun that there is out of uh, spending power and out of different the levels in which people will be able to spend on clothes. But do, do you think that sort of changed anything about the fashion business that that you see day to day? That sense of a kind of need to connect between high fashion and broader levels of society. Well, what's amazing about fashion today is that its influence and its direction and its inspiration comes from so many different places. You can see today, you know, a young designer working out of Nigeria, a young designer working out of Australia, a young designer working out of the Ukraine, and they have the opportunity and the possibility to be as influential and as much part of the conversation as an equally talented designer that may come from more traditional cities like Paris or Milan, London, New York. So I think the fact that the playing field is so much broader and so much more is, is frankly completely global just makes everything more interesting, more exciting, reflects the world that we all live in today. You can't put anything in a box. You have to break down all those barriers. And you sound like you're defending fashion globalization at a time when a lot of people have concerns about globalization, both the UK and in, in America. Well, I think there are different conversations to be had about taxes and tariffs and things like that. But I believe that to be a strong voice in fashion today, you have to be global. And I think to think otherwise is ridiculous. I mean, it gives you a bigger platform. It gives you a wider audience. It gives you an ability to connect with more people every single day and for them to wear your clothes. So why wouldn't a designer working today want to be thought of as a global designer? It's it's so interesting talking to Tom Ford, who is currently coming in to replace the great Diane von Furstenberg as president of the CFDA, which is the Council of Fashion Designers of America. And the very first point that Tom raised when we originally had the conversations with him is that American fashion has to be thought of as global. And if you look at the history of great designers who have reached great success, they haven't reached that success by thinking, oh, I have to be French or, oh, I have to be Australian or whatever it may be. They've achieved that great success by reaching out to the world. Let's turn towards the influence of fashion on politics. And you're also involved in in political fundraising. Sometimes you certainly like your, your voice to be heard in the argument about values, which is particularly lively one it could be said in in the US at the moment are you winning by the way do you feel you're winning your 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 values uh competition? Um, I don't think of it as a competition I, I do think of it as all of us being deeply concerned by a lot of what is happening in this country I can't speak with the same uh, knowledge about England I mean I certainly read about it and I'm there a lot and it seems like it's Does been, Brexit keep you up at night? <laughs> it's been a challenging time I think for, for many people in England over the past few years I, I feel that the referendum that happened originally was not made clear to the British people from what I can see I don't think what it meant was fully explained in a, in, in a way that 
maybe might have made that that choice a little bit different. But Is it difficult for fashion industry? Well, I I think it can be challenging if it goes through, and who knows the way things are going uh, from a day to day basis. I think it could be challenging in terms of tariffs. I think it could be challenging in terms of finding talent that are willing to to move to the UK right now. But I also believe that creative people are amazingly resilient and will find a way. And there is so much talent in Britain. There's so many young designers that one admires that sees finding a foothold a foothold in fashion. I think the Stephanie Fair at the British Fashion Council and uh, Caroline Rush both do terrific jobs, raising awareness, helping with education. Would you like to see fashion campaigning against a no-deal Brexit? Which would be the... I think the, that's where the British Fashion Council and, and the um, those who live in Britain who are more aware of the ins and outs of it than I am to take a stand. I, I know that they have concerns and hopefully those concerns will be addressed. I think it's it's more important that fashion takes a stand on other issues and that all of us have done this over the past many years. I, I think that we've taken a stand, a very strong stand on LGBTQ rights. I think we've taken a strong stand on immigration. I think we've taken a, st- a strong stand on human rights. I think with leaders like Stella McCartney, the fashion industry is is very aware of uh, the damage that many of um, should, many should of it us, have a guilty conscience? I think you have to uh, have a conscience that is aware and a conscience that can look for solutions. I think just being guilty doesn't solve anything. Overproduction. If I walk out of here and walk into a store, the amount of overstock, yes, notwithstanding I, attempts to bring it down, is. Stupendous, isn't it? I think it's very important for people to be aware of what's happening and to be aware of the dangers that we're seeing ahead of us. Every CEO in the world of fashion or indeed in the world of beauty that one talks to today is is aware. And uh, I'm not sure that I would call it a, a, a guilty conscience. I think it's just people with a conscience and with the ability to make change. And they all are working towards sustainability and solving the problems at hand. The word that I would use is finding a solution. Let's uh, look at some of, of the women in politics here in the US that you featured or put on, on, on the cover, Ocasio Cortez, Kirsten Gillibrand. You do seem to keep your distance a bit from the Trumps and Melania Trump. I, I think she featured a long time ago, but before she was in the White House as First Lady. She makes it sometimes to Vogue.com, but uh, not to the magazine. Is that a conscious decision? There are so many women in in politics that deserve celebration, whether it's Kirsten or Senator Harris or Senator Warren. We just recently ran a piece in our current issue about five of the six political female candidates, all of which I felt deserved a place in vogue and how wonderful after a lot of naysayers said after HRC not succeeding that it would be very difficult Hillary Clinton to, to those who don't yes don't know the acronym not succeeding would women might find it very difficult to find a voice in the in the current presidential campaigns and how wonderful that that is not the case and that in fact I think that both Elizabeth Warren and uh, Senator Harris are among the top four candidates right now. And how did you react to the Donald Trump tweets at the start of the the week that I'm talking to you, which very directly highlighted uh, the non-white status of four women on the left of politics, Ocasio 
Cortez probably being the best known uh, outside America. What was your feeling about that? I think the president is playing to his base. And I think that is what I personally feel is that's behind a lot of uh, what he says and what he does, that he's very conscious and very aware of who is supporting him. And there are many, many people in this country who don't. And um, I think, unfortunately, the divide is getting bigger. And all I can say is that, that I hope we will be able to see things differently come 2020. But did it make you angry? I think it's become expected at this point. So a lot like having a guilty conscience, becoming angry is, is not really helpful. And better to think about what we can do to move people's thinking and change the way people think and how can we talk about values and everything that a lot of people in this country believe in. We just glided, or perhaps it's cleared, I don't know, past the question of Melania and where she sort of features in uh, in Vogue world. Do you feel that she's not the the right person to highlight in the magazine? Or I really asked you if it was a conscious decision to kind of lift up this portrayal of Democrat women. I think it's important for Vogue to support women who are leading change in this country. There is something so visual about the Trumps and his sort of ill-fitting suits and the strange trousers and red baseball cap, almost deliberately off-trend, not interested in some ways in presenting himself in other than, as you perhaps refer to, a way that might echo with a base. Melania put together, a much more put-together way. She did uh, come to the UK and I think very consciously wanted to see herself as an ambassador for British fashion in, in, in this case or a transatlantic ambassador. I mean, do you value that? And or would you just rather kind of well, stay I away from the one, Trumps? It, I think, um, you know, First Lady, uh, First Lady Michelle Obama really was so incredible and in every decision she made about fashion. She supported young American designers. She supported uh, designers indeed from all over the world. She was the best ambassador that this country could possibly have If in, in many ways, obviously, way beyond But she's not the first lady now, so fashion. what about the one that you've got now? And to me, she is the example that I admire. Would you uh, give Donald Trump fashion advice if he called? I think he's unlikely to call. We never know. We have a, a call out. I, I, I doubt that that would yield, but there you go. So let's look to the Met Gala, the big theme this year, much written about and dissected afterwards. And a whole lot of doctoral theses are probably coming our way on uh, camp. Why camp and who did it best? Well, I, I think the curatorial decision of the Met is always made by our brilliant curator in charge of the Costume Institute, Andrew Bolton. And I, my, my role at the Met is, is simply to support Andrew in, in whatever decision, whatever curatorial choices that he made. And I believe that his thinking behind this exhibition was obviously slightly to celebrate 50 years of a Stonewall, which happened this past month, to really acknowledge the influence that camp has had on fashion and style and how it has started, I believe, in the court of uh, Louis XIV, which I think a lot of people didn't know. And the exhibition I traced... I think you quite like to be at the court of Louis XIV. <laughs> and it traced the history of camp from that time up until the par- uh, current day. So it was from sun kings to drag queens, as he and I have said. And it's been very rewarding to see the audiences at the exhibition because obviously many, many members of the LGBTQ community have been to see it, but also um, people from 
all over the world have been interested and are really interested in the, in in the history of camp, and I think have learned a lot. And I think what is so incredible about Andrew's work is that he bring he puts a spotlight on the history of fashion and the influence of fashion and the effect that fashion can have on in so many different ways. He brings that to a much broader audience than I, I think that people fully understand. It isn't just the world of fashion that goes to those shows. And to see the range of people going in there every day is is extraordinary. And the numbers are obviously also deeply rewarding. Uh, the exhibition last year, which was called Heavenly Bodies, and reflected the influence of the Catholic Church on costume from the past and today and, and included amazing pieces from the Vatican itself was actually the highest visited exhibition in the history of the, the museum so itself. One thing I wanted to ask you, it's actually interesting you bring up the, the two years and the, the mm. two different themes, but one thing that does link them is a sort of look at or changing views of sex appeal, of gender roles and where they fit. And of course, they're so integral to, to mm. fashion, everything from the the shape of what we wear, what we want to say about ourselves or what we don't in, in what we, we wear. But how much has that changed in, in, in an era which, you know, just to put the slightly vulgar tag on it, is more woke, is more aware that uh, people don't like to be pigeonholed or perhaps are just stronger in objecting to it than maybe their parents' well, generation? I think fashion has always celebrated, but never more so than today, inclusivity and diversity. And I think that's part of the appeal of the camp show to put a, a spotlight on the community it, you know in a museum like the Met it you know gives it a significance that you know fashion show but, but doesn't it's celebrated have. at least in the more you could call it the more formal end of fashion from the catwalks the shows what ends on, on the cover of magazines uh, not not just Vogue but Vogue in the very much in the in the flagship role you could say it has also been a bit slow overall onto some forms of diversity, whether it's skin colour on the cover or whether it's body shape, it's still the world of thin, isn't it? I actually think that's changed a lot. And I think that if you look at the shows today, the casting is so much more diverse in terms not only of skin colour, but also of shape. And I, I think if I look back, say, in some of the shows in the 90s where you're absolutely correct, it was very much one look. And that's so much what designers actually were, I believe, celebrating because in the 80s it was much more about individuality and the, and the height of the supermodel. And then you moved into the 90s and I think they were looking for something that was less about the girl or the man on the runway and more about the clothes. But I, I think particularly among a younger generation of designers who are casting in a completely different way, they're not just casting from the agencies, they're casting from the street or from their friends. It is a celebration of all body types and all skin colors. And I, I think that that is a huge change that's but happened in the past few years. Naomi Campbell uh, said in a Newsnight interview, diversity is not a trend. And she sounded, you know, she sounded a bit bitter, really, about, about some things. She certainly sort of felt that she'd been uh, not given the prominence in British Vogue that she felt she should have had. And she thought that was connected to not being, being white. Does she have a point? Well, I, I, 
my memories of Naomi in British Vogue, and certainly right now under the leadership of Edward Enneville, she's celebrated uh, quite a lot. I believe there was a whole issue dedicated to her just a couple of months ago. But her point was that for a long time that I think didn't if happen. She's, if, she's, if she's talking about the past, I think that Naomi's name was um, always mentioned among the top supermodels, Christy, Linda, Naomi. There was never any question of her not being part of it. Maybe what Naomi is talking about is that she was maybe just Naomi and there weren't others. Is, is, so is that a fair criticism? As a, that and that she, I would I would say that she would... I, I don't know, I'm not sure which interview you're referring to, and I, but I could understand that she might feel that way. And, and to give her full credit, Naomi has always been very, very vocal about diversity and I think has been very instrumental in, in leading the change and, and, and the charge. And she should only be recommended for that. But I think that she would agree. I would be surprised if she did not agree that things have definitely changed. Would this argument about diversity which you're clearly quite engaged in and yes. you're thoughtful about and how things have changed and audiences are changing in their expectations. Would it apply also to, to body type, to body size? Because that is, that is, there is a bit of a tension there, isn't there? As fashion has been to an extent, or the portrayal of it about ideals, would a plus-size model be a comfortable fit for you, say, on the cover of Vogue? I mean, we, we've had Ashley Graham on the cover of Vogue. We certainly include... Uh, girls of all all uh, sizes in the pages, not certainly um, more than girls that are, have more slender frames. But as I was saying before, I do feel that fashion as an industry is so much more embracing of inclusivity, body positivity than it has been in the past. And I think it certainly has strides more to do, more to so go, further to go. To put, but a, we're put a nail making... into it. Fashion models on the cover of Vogue, yes or no? Well, I personally don't like Less that than. word. <laughs> I think I think we talk about different shapes. I mean, I think it's it's not a question of saying that one is right and one is wrong. I think it's a celebration of all women. So Prada, Prada today, doubtless something else fantastic to wear to the office tomorrow. Do you have a okay, to have a budget fashion treat? Well, I think fashion can come from all prices, all parts of the world. And from a personal perspective, I don't think so much about uh, the price tag as I do about the creativity and how putting something on makes me feel but I think fashion is the most democratic than it's ever been and how wonderful is that you don't think we worry too much about having a fashion disaster or the wrong choice I think the most important thing is to express yourself and find out what we could be wearing in vogue I suppose Anna Winter thank you very thank much you for, for having me and we'd love to know what you think is the sartorial always political what will it take for fashion to become truly sustainable? And what else might need to change on the catwalk? Write to us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We really do like to hear from you. And you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in New York, this is The Economist. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.